If you're just only coding, it's great. You got all these projects out and you're learning more, but nobody knows you did all this. You can't expect people to find it out without you telling them. So the best person to advocate for you is you. Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, we speak with successful developers about their advice on how to learn to code and get your first job as a developer. I am your host, Alex Booker, and today I'm joined by Rizal Scarlett, developer advocate at GitHub and a mentor to early career developers. Rizal seems to impress wherever she goes. And in this episode, I'm expecting some of her magic to rub off on yourself. I suppose what stood out to me about Rizal is that nothing has been handed to her. And as a result, she takes nothing for granted. That has surely trickled into her work ethic and ability to identify and carve out opportunities where other people might not even be looking. After studying psychology, but running out of money, she inched into IT support, then inched again into coding. Step by step, she now works at a company we all admire, like GitHub. How does she do it? It's the Scrimba podcast. Let's find out. Don't forget to keep an ear out for your key takeaways from this episode and share them on social media. Every week, we read out our favorite comments and takeaways in the break. Word of mouth is the best way to support this podcast, so thank you in advance. Without any further ado, this is Rizal Scarlett. Let's get into it. It definitely wasn't something I wanted to do. I didn't really understand truly what coding was, and I didn't have other people in my life who were really in tech. What happened and how I got into tech initially is that I was studying psychology in undergrad, and then I realized like I don't have enough money to continue to um, the next semester, so I ended up having to drop out. And that made me realize, okay, if I don't have money to continue to the next semester, maybe I won't really have enough for the next following years and usually with a psychology degree you need to like get a graduate degree to essentially start making money and actually have like a career as a therapist or a psychologist so I decided to like go back to the drawing board and figure out what careers would like I would still be able to make a living without having to go through years and years of school tech kept popping up so I decided to try that out at first I was a little nervous on the computer science front because I didn't have a strong math background so I went for IT instead um, and became an IT support person but after a few like months and years of working in that I wanted to challenge myself more and I attended a coding boot camp and um, became a software engineer it feels like quite a, a leap from sort of psychology to computing. What played into that decision at the time? I'll be honest and say maybe the, the money. That was really yeah. survival mode. And I was like, you know what? I've used the computer before. Like I should be able to figure this out. Was it as easy as you might have hoped? The transition into IT support was not too bad because it was really just like me troubleshooting. A lot of times I was working with like older employees who maybe never really were comfortable with their computer. So that part wasn't too hard. But the transition into software engineering was a little bit harder than I expected, but I liked it. I think I liked the challenge of thinking and um, realizing like, oh, I actually do have a more 
logically minded brain and I just never like paid attention to it before. I was checking out your LinkedIn, by the way, and the only thing that struck me right away is how small my scroll bar got on the right hand side because <laughs> your work experience is so long. It seems like you've done quite a few different types of roles around the IT support and later on development. I think before it said you're a front desk associate at Planet Fitness. That's pretty cool. But yeah, can you talk us through that a little bit, like the story there? I think one of the reasons I probably had so many jobs is because I was excited to have a job. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. When I, my parents brought me to America, I came here undocumented and they didn't know it would negatively impact my life as much. So for a lot of my life, I couldn't have a job and do other things that adults in America could do. So as soon as I got the opportunity to be able to work, I like did so many jobs. So I like started off as like a site director and a coach at this organization called Let's Get Ready. And they teach people like SAT prep. Then I went into Planet Fitness as a front desk associate um, on the side. I was like, oh, in order for me to be able to fund my learning for IT support, I wanted to get a like higher paying job. So I became a phlebotomist while I was working at Planet Fitness. That's how I got that phlebotomy job. Once I finished out like my courses with IT support, that's when I transitioned into IT support. And then after that is when I transitioned into software engineering, if that helps paint the picture more. Yeah, yeah. No, but the reason I ask, I think, is because so many people learning to code, it's easy to see that person coming out of school thinking you're already behind as someone changing career or like you had to make the perfect decision. But I think for so many people, and you're a perfect illustration of this, there's nothing wrong with trying out a bunch of different jobs, seeing what resonates and, you know, course correcting a little bit. There'll be some things you like about one job or one role within tech. And from there, you can improve your path, right? Instead of trying to design this perfect path without all the information up front. Yeah, I agree with that. I think a lot of times, especially when you graduate high school, they're like, pick the career that you want for your rest of your life, you don't you don't need to do that. You can try out a career, take your transferable skills from that career and try out another one. Without school or anything, how did you go about teaching yourself computing and coding? I tried self-teaching at first, which was great. Like I did free code camp and the things that were available to me in 2018. But after that, I decided to go to a coding boot camp because for me, just how I am, I like more of a structure or some accountability. Somebody being like, if you don't do this, you're going to get in trouble. So that's where I like learned computing. And then I, I continued to learn more because after I got a job, I enrolled in college. So I did have some formal training. It's cool you went to a boot camp. I mean, it's really interesting as well that you could identify about yourself the ways you like to learn. There are always challenges, right? Whether you go the boot camp, university or self-taught route, they're just a, a bit different. What did you enjoy the most about the boot camp apart from the accountability? I think I enjoyed that I didn't have to figure out what I needed to learn. I think I struggled with that a little bit when I tried to learn on my own. I just wasn't sure, like, should I start with Python or HTML? Like, where do I go next? And I I think I enjoyed the camaraderie of other people within the, the boot camp. I went to a free boot camp called Resilient Coders that was like mainly for people of color. So I liked starting off my, my software engineering career with 
people of color. Can you talk more about that community and camaraderie part of learning to code? I think a lot of times people think coding is like this lonesome, isolated job. And there are times when we're like working alone, but it's great to be able to work with people and be able to be like, oh, can I bounce an idea off of you or whatever? And to hear from other people's experiences that like, oh, I'm struggling and having a hard time with this as well. Like, I think that was really helpful for me to have other people be like, oh man, this is hard to learn. That way I wasn't thinking that I'm the only one not picking up the information. Was it like a tough decision to go to a boot camp? You mentioned that this one was free essentially. That's pretty special. It was still tough though. Well, okay. Actually, I'm a little bit more impulsive. So as soon as I heard about it, I was ready to just join it. Ah, uh, decisive, not impulsive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like that word better. Decisive. <laughs> yeah, I was ready to join it. I was like, you know what? Like, I'm ready to learn more. I had the privilege of still living with my parents at the time. So it wasn't like I wouldn't be able to afford rent or something like that. But I told my boyfriend at the time, who's not my husband, that I was going to join it and I wanted him to join it with me. And he was like, wait, hold on. But like, how would you have money for other things? Because it's free, but that doesn't mean you'll still have an income coming in. So he suggested that like we still both do it. But how about we like save six months worth of money first and then join the boot camp? So I think that made it easier for me. But besides that, wasn't a hard choice. I was ready. So your husband is a developer as well? Yeah. Yeah, he is. And you both learned at the boot camp for the first time pretty much. Or, or like, I guess you did some free code camp and stuff at first. Yeah, we both learned at the same boot camp. Yeah, I did the free code camp stuff a little bit before him. But yeah, it was great to have him in there. But it also, we had a lot of arguments. <laughs> What do you mean? <laughs> semicolons or no semicolons, tabs or spaces, GIF or GIF. <laughs> I think now we learn to appreciate it, but there are areas of like parts of web development that he's amazing at and I'm not good at and then vice versa. So like sometimes I would come in with like an idea that just didn't really make sense and he'd be like, no. And I'd be like, no, my idea makes sense. We're going to do it. So yeah, I'm a little, a little bit like stubborn. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. And did the coding come easily to you? You had this background with computing, working in IT and support and things, but again, programming is this sort of specific way of logical thinking is so new to so many people. There were parts that I was able to pick up well from being in IT, but then there were parts that weren't that great. I think I picked up how to use the terminal and command line a little bit faster than maybe other people in the bootcamp because I was like, I've used this before um, or like I've heard of the term APIs before. So I was like, okay, I kind of get what it does. But the part that like what you said with the logical thinking, I had a really hard time figuring out how do I write these functions or steps telling the computer what to do. And like my bootcamp teacher kept saying like, you got to break it down by like little by little, but I struggled to understand that at first. I think that whole thinking like a programmer part is difficult for most people, but it comes with practice, right? And there are some tools. And I, I think the one you mentioned from your teacher, breaking things down into small units is a great tool. Just takes a bit of time to learn them and then you can be on your way. And with that in mind, I'm wondering how you went on after the boot camp. How did you go about finding your first developer opportunities? I was very excited to do that. So I, I did a couple IT internships, like we said, in IT jobs. I tried to see if I could stay connected with those companies and see if I can like be able to return as maybe a software engineering intern. Um, so I had like 
interviews with those people or maybe even recruiters that maybe moved from one company to another. So after my coding bootcamp, I landed an internship at a company called Formlabs. Why internships over junior developer roles? I started off with internships first because I was used to them from IT and I liked the experience of being able to try out like, is this company a right suit for me? And am I a right suit for them? And then also be able to figure out like how do software engineering teams work without me having the pressure of like this project is going to sink or swim the whole company you know an internship they give you like toy projects sometimes and they might throw it away I kind of was nervous of like what would it be like to work on a software engineering team I was nervous of failing and I was like let me just go in like softly and then if I do a good job they can transition me from intern to full-time and then I know a lot of times people want to like leave their boot camp and then make as much money as possible I had the privilege of like at the time I still lived with my parents so I was like I'm okay if I make a little bit less money to be able to like build my confidence and my knowledge of how software engineering teams work um, without putting too much pressure on myself. And those connections you had from the previous IT internships you did, did they help at all with these first opportunities? Yeah, I think they definitely did. Like one recruiter that I worked with at one of my IT internships ended up moving to a different company and I like messaged her and then I was able to get an interview. Yeah, I think that's so underrated. Just, you know, every person you pass, even if they're in a different industry, perhaps uh, there might be some opportunity to help each other out in the future. I was also interviewing someone a few weeks ago where she was just talking to her friend about development and then her friend recommended this company that she'd heard of. I think just kind of like vocalizing what you're working on and what you're looking for is a great way to attract those kind of opportunities. That's so true. Like if you just start telling people your goals, someone might probably help you move to the next goal. Like they'll be like, oh, I know exactly what to do. I love that. How long did the internships last and did it go as you planned? Did you get given more responsibility in the same company or maybe you parlayed that experience to get another role as a junior or mid-level or whatever it happened to be at the time? The first internship experience didn't go as well. It was really weird. I wasn't on a team with other software engineers. I was on the business systems analyst team and I was the only like software engineer. They wanted me to build out a web app. So that didn't go as well because I don't think I got the mentorship I needed. But then I did another internship, which I know sounds crazy, but I did. And at that company, I was able to go from intern to junior to developer. They had a lot more software engineers. They had mentorship and they had a better plan for like how I would move from intern to full-time. I suppose with the benefit of hindsight, if you went back to that time, you'd probably know the signs to look for, right? Like what would make a great team or a great employer. Can you maybe share that hindsight with us today? Like say someone's looking for a new job. What are some of the things you recommend they look for to make sure that they are joining a supportive company and team that can help them grow? Yeah, that's a good question. One, are there varying levels in the team? I think it's a little bit scary to join a team of all junior developers, which is rare, but it sometimes happens. Like if they're all new to coding and then if there's mostly senior developers, I guess that's not too bad. But I think having varying levels helps because one, you have the other junior developers like you where you can relate to them and have that camaraderie. And then two, if you have like more mid-level or senior developers, they'd be able to come and help you out, give you better mentorship, give you better code reviewing. That's great. Also, how do they react to when people make mistakes? Are they more on the blame culture or is it like more of a blameless culture? Um, because that can really affect your confidence as a software engineer. Because a lot of times it's not your fault. 
if you mess up. It's just there was not guardrails in place for someone at your level. I would look for like those two things. That's a sort of petrifying situation to be in where you're scared to fail as a junior, because that's kind of how growth happens, right? When you fail and you learn and then you don't make the same mistake, there should probably be processes in place to make sure that when you fail, it's not catastrophic. You hopefully don't bring down production or send a mass email to uh, the entire customer. What was that company? There was a company recently that sent out like a test email to millions and millions of users. And there's a bunch of tweets like, oh, this junior is in trouble. I think it was HBO. I have a talk where I literally talk about like setting juniors up for success. And I'm like, this was an example of not doing that. It's not their fault. There were enough guardrails in place. <laughs> That's perfect. We'll have to link that in the show notes then. Coming up, how to brand yourself and why you should take your time. Oh, I learned to code in like two months and now I'm making 500K. I will be right back with Rizal in just a second. But first, Jan, the producer, and I wanted to read some of our favorite comments and takeaways from last week. Indira Kumar at The Luckiest Man on Twitter shared our interview with Lane Wagner and wrote, I learned so many insights on the details and possible reasons behind the recent tech layoffs. The Coding Mermaid shared the episode with Florin Pop and wrote, What an awesome and truly honest podcast. Thank you for sharing so much advice. Cherry at Cherry D tweeted, Been listening to the Scrimba podcast episodes all morning at the office. A guest mentioned Kevin Powell and now I'm going through beginner CSS playlist. I'm discovering great additional resources to help strengthen my understanding. I was also really thrilled to see people mentioning the Scrimba podcast as part of their 100 days of code. Totally. Thomas Pritchard at tpritchard843 mentioned us twice recently in his 100 days of code. On day 31, he listened to Scrimba podcast to hear the inspiring stories of other self-taught devs. And on day 32, he listened to the Scrimba podcast again on his commute. And over on LinkedIn, Jack Lee mentioned this in his day 109 of 100 days of code. I'm actually going to go through your LinkedIn posts in the upcoming weeks because I think I've been sleeping on it. But in the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, tweet about it, share it, mention it on socials, and you might get a shout out. And now we're back to the interview with Rizal. When you're a junior, it can feel a bit like every company is doing you a favor, maybe, by recognizing your potential and investing in you. And that can be true to some extent, right? I think it's fine to be grateful, but you also have to recognize that as a junior, you bring a lot to the table as well. What's your experience been working as a junior? I think I did start off thinking that like, oh my gosh, these people are so nice for just hiring me. Like I have no clue what I'm doing. And like they took a chance on me. But looking back, I don't think I should have thought that way because I did bring a lot of value to different teams. I feel like I helped us to think about different user experiences differently. I know that I always bring like an eagerness and excitedness to complete work. Sometimes, you know, people might not be like, oh, I don't I don't know if I want to do that. But I always like have been a person that like raised my hand and been excited. I'm like, oh, I want to learn about this. So I think I've always brought that personality of being eager. And I think other people, if they are junior, 
mirror and they just reflect on themselves and who they are, they're probably bringing some really valuable insight to their team or or helping to improve the team culture and they don't even realize it. How did you get hired as a junior developer advocate at GitHub? What's the story there? Yeah, so I was working as a software engineer and I was also helping to run a nonprofit. Like it was like very grassroots. It was just the three of us running it. And this nonprofit was like teaching women of color how to code and non-binary people of color how to code. And it was just like basics of like HTML, CSS, JavaScript. And then we encouraged them to go to other coding boot camps or we created partnerships with other coding boot camps so they can learn more. And through that, I realized I really enjoy like building out demos, teaching people, creating slide decks, empowering people. And I was like, oh, I wish I could do this like for the rest of my life. But this nonprofit doesn't pay the same money as a software engineer. Um, but then I started to realize there's this thing called developer advocates and people are doing it. Like, I'm like, wait a minute. People are doing like talks and teaching people and getting to experiment. And I'm like, oh, I want to do that. So I continued to like stay connected in the Twitter community or the Twitter developer community. And I was like, really just, I don't know a better word for this. I guess looking at people's LinkedIn's to just understand like how they got from point one to point B. And um, one day I saw that GitHub was hiring a junior developer advocate. And I was like, this is so perfect because I had been interviewing for like regular, not junior roles in developer advocacy. And people were like, I think you have like some of the fundamental skills, but you're a little too junior. So I was like, this one is great because the this job description says willing to learn. And I'm like, that's me. I'm willing to learn. How long have you been there for so far? Oh, man, maybe a year and five months. Yeah. So in a matter of like a year or so, you've presented at GitHub University during the keynote, which is so epic, by the way, Rizal, that's so cool. Published so many posts on Dev2, they get lots of attention, hearts, favorites, comments, all that good stuff. Streaming, ever public speaking, you know, Twitter spaces and all these things, obviously delivering a lot of value. It's really cool. Thank you. And I think I will say what made me even more productive and be able to make an impact was my team and my manager being able to understand like how they can best support me and allow me to grow. When I joined GitHub, my manager at the time, who was Brian Douglas, he would meet with me twice a week. He would talk to me about like different strategies he uses to succeed, like um, that sometimes he would attend product meetings, even if we weren't necessarily invited or he would rewatch the recordings to figure out like, what does GitHub really want to push forward? So he could figure out like what he should prioritize in terms of like advocacy and awareness. And he just looked for different ways to insert himself. And I think him giving me that advice and then also putting me at the forefront of like if someone said oh we need someone to do this he'll be like let's try Rizal like let's have Rizal do that and I think that helped me a lot more and like he would still support me he wouldn't put me in something that like I was like completely gonna fail at he would like give me the tools to succeed and then I would be able to execute from there. I like that a lot because even though clearly you were perfectly capable as you took the opportunities created by Brian in that case and ran with them as a junior in a new company, you might not have raised your hand and be like, yeah, I think I can do that. But having your, having your manager sort of advocate for you in that way is really, really powerful. It's hard to get a sort of take of where your open source contributions and writing and, and Twitter and things like that, where they were before you got the job at GitHub. 
was personal branding, which could be writing, public speaking, having a portfolio or whatever, were these things you were conscious of during your job searches before you got this role at GitHub? Or are they things that kind of snowballed a bit later? I think they snowballed a bit later. I didn't really have that presence. I think I knew you had to, but I didn't really know how. Like I would tweet. I've always been someone that used Twitter a lot. Like even when I was in college or in boot camp, I'll be like, oh, I got to learn this today. It was super interesting. Like I would tweet that out. And I guess now looking back, that's quote unquote learning in public but I didn't realize that. You kind of invented it without knowing it had been invented already. Right. (laughs) Six beat you to it. He did. (laughs) Yeah, it was like two years too late. Besides that, I think what I had used in like my quote unquote portfolio was like my slides that I made at the nonprofit I worked at or like maybe I sent in some recordings of me teaching, but I really didn't have this like long history of like me creating content. Do you think that learning in public and having a personal brand is a good thing to focus on as a junior developer? Or would you instead suggest people focus on, you know, just becoming the best coder and interviewee they can be? While it may seem overwhelming, I think both are of almost equal importance. I think a lot of times we do see people who don't have those coding skills and they're on Twitter being like 10 ways to become a developer in 10 days and stuff like that. And I'm like, this is kind of clear that you might not really understand software engineering and you're just trying to create content to gain more of a public presence. Um, but I think I think the balance is important. If you're just only coding, it's great, right? Like you you got all these projects out and you're learning more. But nobody knows that you did all this. You can't expect people to find it out without you telling them. So the best person to advocate for you is you. So like you kind of have to put it out there, even though it feels like a little cringy sometimes. And then people will start recognizing like, oh, Alex is really smart at this. Maybe we should hire him or maybe we should bring him on a podcast or something like that. Getting your name out about like the work that you're doing is just as important as actually doing the work, in my opinion. Hopefully someone clips that and uh, goes viral. Thank you for using my name (laughs) in your example. With the remainder of our time, I thought it'd be really interesting to talk a little bit about some ways people can learn in public. I'll kind of throw categories at you and, and we'll take it in a, in a certain direction. Maybe the first one that's a really good one to start with is public speaking. This could be all kinds of things, right? It could be giving a lightning talk at a meetup. It could be submitting a CFP at a conference. Maybe you won't be talking at like NDC or GitHub Universe or something as a brand new developer, but there are some like conferences like Codeland, I think it's called, uh, with forum and dev2 which is specifically for beginners so there are opportunities there maybe youtube videos could count for something like this as well just putting your face and your voice in front of an audience whether it's async or not but but the question people always run into quite quickly is like do i have anything to talk about and then it's like oh i don't feel very confident doing this you know like it's, it's really out of your comfort zone is it something that's always come naturally to you and in any case what advice could you offer to people looking to get involved first of all i still am a pretty shy person. I actually was surprised that I could even do GitHub Universe because when I do public speaking, my voice is usually like shaky. Like even as a kid, like I will talk and I'd be like, hello. So I understand if people feel nervous. And then in terms of like not knowing what to talk about, I think an easy one is like your journey and how you got in there. And then also, I think a lot of times people give themselves this barrier of, oh, people have talked about this before or everybody already knows about this. It's not 
really true. Like there's somebody out there that doesn't know about HTML or doesn't know about CSS or whatever. Like even if you think it's basic, there's somebody that doesn't know it and would love to hear it in the way that you're going to explain it. That's how I always try to think of it. And I would say a low, low barrier to like trying to do a talk, kind of like what you said with a YouTube video is like their virtual conferences and virtual meetups out there, especially since the pandemic happened. That was really, really helpful to me to just hop on a Zoom and do a talk because I couldn't really see anybody's faces. I was just looking at my slide deck and yeah, that was helpful for me. And by the way, they would love to have more volunteers. I think they probably can't get enough. So you might be surprised at the reception. Yeah, that's true. Okay. The next kind of category, and I think there's a little bit of overlap here, but we have to talk about it. It's writing, could be a dev two post, could be your own blog, could even be like writing for your portfolio, doing a sort of a, a write up of one of your projects, for example. I've read a bunch of your dev two posts. In fact, a lot of them before our interview in recent months just, you know, popped up on the feed because they were doing really well on the platform. And I think you, you write so wonderfully. You seem to have so much to write about. Like, I actually don't know how you do it. Like the posts are like, you know, dun, 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 so long. But at the same time, it feels like you're not using any more words than you need to. What's your process for creating a really awesome Dev2 post? I don't even know if I ever thought of my process. I've always liked writing because I feel like I express myself better through writing than speaking. Usually if I learn something new, I'll like write it down on a list of like, oh, this would be cool to write about because I just learned about this. And sometimes I'm not necessarily thinking like this has to be for other people. Sometimes I write for me. Like I'm like, oh, I need to remind myself of like how to do this technical thing. Or if it's on a soft skill thing, like I'm like, maybe I'll just remind myself that I'm not like for, for the moments that I have imposter syndrome or I'm feeling down that I'm not that bad as I'm thinking. That's the one thing. Um, And then uh, as a developer advocate, I think it's easier for me to think of all of these things to do because sometimes I'll be like listening to people of like what we want to promote. Like we want to promote Copilot more or code spaces. So then I'll be like, oh, what's this really cool thing I could do with it? And I'll, I'll like write that down and save it for later. Um, In terms of like writing after I got like all these random ideas, I'll choose one and I'll create an outline and, and the person that I'm writing to or like the type of person. So if it's me as a beginner, if it's me as an expert that way, you said I write too much. I would write even more if I was trying to write for every single user. Hey, hey, not too much. Ju just enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be too much if I tried to write for every single user. So like if I'm going to write how to use Copilot, I don't need to write for the expert and the beginner and the intermediate. I'll write like one blog post for the beginner. I'll write out the outline and then I'll fill in the outline with like paragraphs. So I guess that's my process. I see this mistake all the time and it's probably something I, I struggled with a little bit as well. Say you're writing about a, a quite advanced topic and you use an arrow function and then you start going off on this tangent to describe arrow functions. And then what happens is the post isn't good for beginners because you're teaching an advanced subject and it's not good for advanced developers because now you're boring them with stuff they already know. Like if you can nail the outline, I reckon a lot of the actual body of the post is going to come more easily. I agree. And I still struggle with it today. The other day I wrote a draft blog post and I was like, oh, 
I'm writing about dev containers. I got to explain what a dev container is. Then I got to do, I'm like, I don't need to do all that. I need to keep it simple. Um, and then maybe in a following blog post, I'll write more about that. And by the way, one of the reasons this is such an important subject to talk about, apart from writing blog posts, is that when you write, what you're trying to do is capture someone's attention and convince them of something or keep them interested to teach them something that's a bit difficult. And this is the exact same thing that applies to your cover letter, to your portfolio, to your LinkedIn to your correspondence with companies when you're talking to them. I'm just wondering, do you sit down, write, and it's done? Or I guess I'm telling you my experience here a little bit. Like I have to kind of write a bad first draft before I can, you know, refine it a little bit and even sleep on it sometimes to get it right. Sometimes I'll kind of like write out the idea in my mind, but I won't be able to write it out on paper yet. And then like if I take a shower or something like that, the thoughts will start coming in and I'll be like, oh, okay, I'll go to my laptop, type out a little bit. Sometimes I get a little too laser focused and I'll just finish the draft and press publish. But other times I'll like do what you said and write a first draft and then review it and then go back over and delete some stuff. You should get one of these. uh, I don't know if you've seen them like waterproof shower notepads. You get a little pen and notepad and you can take notes in the shower. I got one thinking I was going to capture some bloody brilliant ideas, but that's not what happened. I just kind of forgot to use it, to be honest. (laughs) I do need that because sometimes I I get out the shower and I'm like, oh, I forgot all the thoughts. (laughs) All right. The last kind of category of uh, personal branding I wanted to jump into briefly is on the topic of getting involved with community. It's interesting that you host this uh, nonprofit and you also participate in things like Twitter spaces. That's a pretty broad experience, right, between analog and, and digital, but it can be super daunting, I think, for people to get involved. Do you have any advice? Maybe sometimes you're just kind of uh, observing or lurking and you feel like maybe there's more to be done there. I don't think there's anything wrong with observing and lurking. There are communities that I observe and lurk in because I feel like that's the bandwidth I have to contribute because I can't be involved and do everything. And then also like maybe I feel like I'm in the point of I just want to learn from what other people are thinking. So I don't think that's bad. But what's helped me in it not being as scary to meet new people is doing it virtually with a virtual format. I can't see the person if I'm feeling exhausted from socializing with people I could always like respond later and then just go for it like it might be scary but you never know like the connections that you're going to create with people just go for like saying hello to them even if it's just like liking someone's tweet like if you're on twitter or whatever like social media profile right like liking someone's tweet that's interacting with them then they'll be like oh i've seen that face before um i've seen that name before and they'll feel a little bit more familiarized with you so take like little small steps it doesn't have to be like every day you're you're responding to a million tweets and all that but like just interact with people in the way that your social energy can handle it that's what i think like you don't have to be i just like being involved in community because it's just an easy way for me as an introvert to like learn from others without having to like always be hanging out and draining my energy what i take away from that is it's not so daunting really the community is more supportive than you might imagine and when it comes to social media you know it's uh friends not followers try and foster real connections with people and they'll probably take you places in group environments as well i'm totally stealing this advice from someone it was a a guest of mine on the podcast who recently got a job as a developer and they explained to me that one of their favorite ways to approach meetups was to bring a friend 
Like they might not have a, a whole squad of learner developers, but they need one person who was interested. And by going with a friend, you have someone to like fall back on a little bit if you need. And I will just happily say that I recently went to a meetup around, it wasn't around coding, it was around uh, SaaS and startup funding and stuff. I thought it'd be interesting. It was near the office I work at. I'm quite introverted. So I was kind of like, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't go. But I was like, no, I need to make a commitment here. Otherwise I definitely won't go. So I messaged a, a mate of mine and said, hey, I'm going to this event. Do you want to come? And then the combination of the like commitment plus, you know, having someone to fall back on between conversations with different people. Yeah. It made it super easy, super fun. And just speaking as an introvert, I'm sure people listening, there might be various places on the spectrum of introversion and being extroverted. But as an introvert, I rarely ever regret it. Feels a bit daunting sometimes going into it, but on the way out, I never regret it. Yeah. I love that. And wait, you just reminded me of something. So I haven't had to go to a in-person meetup in so long because Massachusetts, like where I live, kind of stopped having a lot of tech meetups once the pandemic happened. Like a lot of them haven't been revamped or like they only have like maybe two or three people showing up. But I do agree with bringing a friend that always did help. And then another thing that I did, which I don't know if this sounds weird, but I will like look at who's on the list of speakers and like who's showing up and I'd be like okay my goal is to talk to this one or two people and then like I would know I uh, accomplished what I needed to. I like that so much. Well we're almost out of time unfortunately but I was hoping just in closing we could get your advice for anybody who's starting their career as a developer, learning to code or, or trying to get their first job. What are some of the most important things that helped you that our listeners might find interesting? The first thing is it's okay to switch after a while. Like sometimes we look at the tech industry and we're like, which one do I start with? Do I start with data analysis, IT, software engineering, product management? I'm like, go for one of them, like focus and stick to that. And then once you get an experience of what that's like and see where your strengths and weaknesses are, then you can maybe try the next career. That's what what I think, at least, like figure out how you can take those transferable skills to something that will make you feel more fulfilled. You don't have to like stay in one thing forever. My other advice is like take your time. You don't have to like rush the entire process. I know a lot of times in coding and software engineering, everyone's like, oh, I learned to code in like two months now making 500k (laughs) no (laughs) that's not always realistic and it is okay to let yourself slowly learn and go on that journey because it'll prepare you even more like you don't want to jump into like being a senior engineer because that's just so much pressure it's okay to start small and then grow little by little And then my last thought is save moments that you've accomplished something, any small win. That way, when you're having like a bad day or not feeling too positive about your work or the value that you're bringing, you can look back at those wins and be like, okay, you know what? This is just a bad day. Oh, I like that so much, Rizal. What, like you could maybe email yourself or something or keep a notepad document and just keep track of these things. That's a really cool idea to end on. Rizal Scarlett, thank you so much for joining me on the Scramble Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. That was the Scramble Podcast episode 108. Next week on the show, we'll have a new developer by the name of Spencer. I, I've always been to computers. Ever since I was like 13, I think is when I put together my first computer. Always played games on computers. I mean, I just spent a lot of my time. I was kind of an introvert in school, so spent a lot of time on it. And originally, I was into design, like graphic design. So I would be making logos or just doing design for various things. And when I was in the ninth grade, uh, the first time 
I ever wrote a line of code was uh, this web development class and I learned a little bit of HTML and CSS. And we also did a little bit of like Scratch or Visual Basic or something like that, like a, a visual you put code blocks together. And then I went to college. I was going to be a biology major. Did that for a year. And then I decided I'm going to switch majors to accounting. Spencer is next week on the Scramble podcast. So if you made it this far, you could also subscribe. You can find the show wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to check out the show notes for resources from this episode, as well as all the ways you can connect with Rizal. The show is hosted by Alex Booker. You can find his Twitter handle in the show notes. I'm Jan, the producer, and we'll be back with you next Tuesday.